You're listening to Plenary Session. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. On September 19th, I was asked to give Grand Rounds at my university, and I made a tape recording of that Grand Rounds lecture. It was entitled, Evidence-Based Medicine Has Been Hijacked in Oncology. This is the audio tape of that lecture, and I apologize for the poor audio quality, but the microphone was at quite a distance from where I was speaking. This is roughly edited, but it's the majority of what I said. I've removed some of the comments of the audience uh, because I didn't feel it was fair to include them in the recording, so you'll just hear what I had to say about this lecture. I hope you find it interesting, and on future episodes, we're going to delve more into some of the themes discussed in this lecture. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It, it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your request. I'm going to talk to you today. I provocatively titled this so that somebody would come, uh, and then I'll, I'll under-deliver. Uh, but it's called Medical Evidence Has Been Hijacked. And I hope to convince you that that's at least in part true in recent years. Okay, so the inspiration for this talk is this paper. Uh, and and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm obviously not going to cover the paper too much, but I just want to say that this is a paper that you know is worth a few minutes of your time if you want to read it. Uh, David Sackett is one of the fathers of evidence-based medicine. He's from McMaster University, and he passed away a couple years ago. And John Ioannidis is one of the leaders in evidence-based medicine, one of the most, 100 most cited authors of all time. And he wrote this as an open letter to David Sackett upon his death. And he said, evidence-based medicine has been hijacked to report to David Sackett. And it was kind of a lamentful letter saying, you know, a lot of the things you set out to do in your career um, didn't go quite the way you wanted them to. And these are ways I've seen evidence-based medicine deviate from its intended goal in my career. So these are some of quotes from his paper, which I will just offer as a teaser, and then we'll see if we can see what we think about them at the end. Um, as evidence-based medicine became more influential, it was also hijacked to serve agendas different from what it originally aimed for. I think it originally aimed for an impartial synthesis of the best available evidence, it's been increasingly hijacked to reach conclusions that favor the sponsors of the products. Um, influential randomized controlled trials are largely done by and for the benefit of the industry. So the majority of large phase three randomized controlled trials are industry sponsored. Um, Meta-analyses and guidelines have become a factory. Um, we have, in some topics, uh, over 100 meta-analyses on the exact same topic. Um, and they mostly also serve vested interests. National and federal research funds are funneled almost exclusively to research with little relevance to health outcomes. We have supported the growth of principal investigators who primarily excel as managers absorbing more money. Diagnosis and prognosis research and efforts to individualize treatment have fueled recurrent spurious promises. Risk factor epidemiology has excelled in salami sliced data dredged articles with gift authorship and has become adept at dictating policy from spurious evidence. EBM still remains an unmet goal worthy to be attained. And just a couple more. Uh, the industry runs a large share of the randomized controlled trials. They do very well. They score better on quality checklists. 
some checklists called the Jadad checklist, and they are more prompt than non-industry trials to post or publish results. The problem is it is just that they often ask the wrong questions and the wrong short-term outcomes, uh, the wrong analyses, the wrong criteria for success, in example, non-inferiority, which we'll talk about, and the wrong inferences. But who cares about these glitches? And then John's final point, I'm not against the industry, quite the opposite. Entrepreneurship is critical to translation and growth. However, corporations should not be asked to practically perform the assessments of their own products. If they are forced to do this, I cannot blame, that, blame them if they buy the best advertisement, i.e. evidence, whatever will sell the product. So it was a very provocative article, and it's, it runs to eight pages. It's heavily referenced. Um, and I'm just going to go through some of the themes of this article. How do I believe the evidence is increasingly hijacked? These are just a few ways I think it's been increasingly hijacked in oncology. And by evidence, I mean the things that we've come to believe are increasingly at odds with, I think, the reality. Because of the control arms we utilize, some drug dosing problems that we see in our trials, some of the big problems with non-inferiority studies, um, the issue of crossover, and which we'll talk about both the inappropriate use of crossover and the inappropriate omission of crossover, some bias in cost effectiveness, bias in what we think R&D is, and some solutions. Okay, so before we get too deep here, I think we have to be drawn to the reality, which is although we spend a great deal of time talking about the transformational drugs in oncology, like ibrutinib, like imatinib, like rituximab, like Herceptin, this is the reality. This is 71 consecutive drug approvals in the US Food and Drug Administration from 2002 to 2014. FOHO and colleagues, they're plotting you the improvement in PFS on the top, the improvement in OS on the bottom. So although we talk a great deal about the wonderful drugs we have, the median improvement in overall survival of a drug approved in the last decade was 2.1 months, shown here. The missing bars are simply where we do not have that data. So I think it's fair to say that the average drug is, is modest or marginal at best. All right, bad control arm. So we wrote this, this is Lan this month in the Lancet Oncology. Choice of control group in randomized trials of cancer medicine, are we testing trivialities? I'll give you a couple examples. Ibrutinib versus Clarambucil, which led to US regulatory approval for Ibrutinib in the frontline setting. Um, this is the letter by Jeff Sharman, who some of you know, doesn't work, live too far from here. Uh, it is not surprising that Berger et al. report positive results in Resonate 2, which is ibrutinib versus chlorambucil. Um, chlorambucil has been the comparator in trials of bendamustine, alemtuzumab, ofatumumab, obinutuzumab, and longer PFS was reported with each of these other agents. In addition, these trials, some of these trials show longer OS than chlorambucil. Um, we reviewed our experience in the CLL registry. We found only 4.5% of patients received chlorambucil monotherapy as first-line therapy. And then they conclude, because of the superior alternative first-line regimens and infrequent use of chlorambucil, we do not think it should serve as comparator in future studies of CLL. So I think their argument here was that, you know, as we all believe, that single-agent chlorambucil is quite easy to beat. Um, I don't think many of us have used it. Okay, but let me give you another example. Uh, this is VMP versus VMP-DARA. DARA improves PFS when added to VMP frontline myeloma versus VMP alone. If you can afford daratumumab, what backbone should you get instead of VMP? If you can afford Dara, which costs almost $100,000 a year, what backbone would you give instead of VMP? VRD. And in fact, in a network meta-analysis, this is every single frontline study that we've published, this is the 
that the comparison, there have been multiple studies comparing MPT with that, MPT without maintenance, MP, MPR, MPR with R maintenance, okay, VMP over here. A network meta-analysis leverages the data across all of these comparisons to make an argument which is the best regimen. RD, RD wins network meta-analysis superior to VMP, and you haven't even had the Velcade, let alone wait till you get to the, the DARA. Okay, so I think that, you know, we will try to argue more, but I think that the choice of control arm is important for clinical trials. You pick a weak control arm, you're going to win. Uh, you're going to win, you'll get regulatory approval, you'll permit doctors to use it. Uh, but the question will remain, uh, is that use better than what we were doing before? And I, it won't answer that question. I think that's the drawback to the straw man control. Okay, dose reduction schemes. We published this about four years ago in the JCO. Uh, we argue that oral anti-cancer drugs have introduced a new problem in, in clinical trials because of limited dosing options and unequal dose reduction schema, and those may affect the outcomes. And here's our argument. Um, lenvantinib was approved in met metastatic hepatocellular carcinoma, not based on superiority over serafinib, but non-inferiority. This is the 95% confidence interval of the hazard ratio shown, 0.79 to 1.06. Okay, when you do a non-inferiority trial, the key thing to look at is the, the line you have chosen initially. So he's saying that the upper bound of the point estimate of the 95% confidence interval has to be below the preselected delta or margin of, of, of non-inferiority. So they said that as long as this 1.06 is less than 1.08, it is non-inferior. So in other words, we have decided, we pick a number in the sand, that if you are 8% worse, that up to, you know, the 95% confidence interval does not exclude you being 8% worse than serafinib, we will consider that non-inferior. What that really means is we are willing to accept the drug, as you know, serafinib improved survival from eight months to 11 months in the SHARP study. And if you're willing to take a drug that could be, has a ratio 1.08 of that, it really translates to, I don't want to bore you with the math, but it translates to 60% of the therapeutic effect of serafinib. So we're saying that we're willing to accept this drug if it is only 60% as good as serafinib is when compared against placebo. Keep in mind, serafinib only adds three months of survival against placebo, okay, in the SHARP study. And in the real world, people don't have outcomes in many, many published series as good as they had in the control arm of SHARP, which was eight months. Okay, 37% of people in both arms of these trials get dose reduced. Whether you got serafinib or you got lenvantinib, 37% get dose reduced. This is important because um, the, the, the dose reduction scheme takes on importance when sizable percentages of patients are undergoing dose reduction. If nobody got dose reduced, it really doesn't matter what the dose reduction scheme is. But if 40% of people get dose reduced, you still have to start looking at what are the dose reduction rules. If you were over 60 kilograms with two-thirds of patients were in this trial, lenvantinib was dose reduced from 12 to 8 to 4. What's that percentage reduction? 8 out of 12, 66. 4 out of 12, 33%. So you go to 66% the starting dose or 33% the starting dose. If you're on serafinib, you go from 400 BID to 400 daily to 400 every other day. So basically you go from 100% to 50% to 25%. If 30% of people have dose reduction, they go from 100 to 50 here, they go from 100 to 66%. You see the point I'm making? Which is that their steps down are shallower on lenvantinib. Okay, does this matter? It actually, it probably does matter a great deal. Because the, the higher you push these doses of dirty TKIs, um, the more effective they are at cytostatic effects. And that's been shown in many, many retrospective papers from the RCC literature by Motzer and colleagues. It's been shown in HCC. It's been shown in other cancers. 
likely what you're doing here is you create rules for dose reduction and you're taking your drug down a little bit slower, which really is pushing the dose of your drug. Let me give you another example. This is Axis. This is even more provocative. Exitinib versus serafinib, second line renal cancer. Um, the first trial of two head-to-head -head drugs that showed a PFS benefit in kidney cancer. This is the benefit, 6.7 versus 4.7 months in PFS. This is the dose reduction schema, and it's similar. It's like 30, 40% of people get dose reduced. If you start on exitinib, you get five twice a day. You get 400 BID on serafinib. On exitinib, you can get dose reduced to 60% versus the 50%, or 40% versus 25%. So those are the, they have the unequal steps. But the other thing is, they had a special protocol amendment that said if you have hypertension, which is a common problem with RCC drugs, after two antihypertensives in serafinib, you have to be dose reduced. With exitinib, you get to max out three antihypertensives before you get dose reduced. So they make a special way to handle AEs for hypertension for their drug. So fewer people were dose reduced on their drug. Moreover, if you took the drug and you didn't have hypertension, you could be dose escalated on exitinib, but you can't on serafinib. So in other words, even if these two compounds are chemically you know, about the same, you're pushing your drug as much as you possibly can push it. You're giving more antihypertensives, you're keeping the dose high, and in the few people who may metabolize drugs very quickly and, and tolerate them very well, you're pushing the dose of the drug to try to get it to even more therapeutic effects. So the question is, is exitinib a better drug than serafinib, or is it merely a byproduct of the dose reductions? Um, so what are, the, what are I think the general principles here is when you take a dirty TKI, by that I mean a TKI that hits many, many targets in the, in the kinome, um, and you combine that with frequent dose reductions and discontinuations, you combine that with uneven dose reduction schema, you effectively push the dose higher in the intervention arm, and you have a problem, I think, because you're not really comparing the chemicals as much as you're comparing different protocols of administering. Um, Non-inferiority trials. Uh, Non-inferiority trials, why oncologists must remain wary. We published this, I think, uh, a few years ago in Lancet Oncology. Um, there's a really nice paper by Scott Abereg and colleagues that came out in JGIM, and he looked at like every non-inferiority trial, not just oncology, but broader, but I suspect the same thing will be true. Um, he looked at all non-inferiority trials, and he tried to draw some conclusions, and he did a very clever thing. One, of every non-inferiority trial published in top journals, what percent conclude the product is non-inferior? 77%. It's very high, actually. It's higher than superiority studies globally. Only 2% actually say in the paper that the new product, drug, device is actually worse. We're actually willing to concede we lost. The other people who don't find non-inferiority, they don't concede they've lost. They say something in between, like, well, we were close, it was underpowered, event rate lower than anticipated, those kinds of things. Okay, Flacco, this is a, Flacco and Yonides found that if it was industry-sponsored NI study, 97% concluded in a different analysis that the product was non-inferior or favorable or acceptable alternative option. And John has written that, you know, this cheeky quote, which is that if you're running trials where 97% of the trial gives you the outcome you want, don't run the trial. I'll just concede the claim to you. Save the money, save the patients. Just I, I concede. It's non-inferior. Go ahead. Just take the claim. You're going to get the result you want. I mean, that's just too high to be true. Okay, you need to know this. Why do you look at the hazard ratio? When you look at the hazard ratio, somebody has pre-specified the delta, which is the upper bound margin of what uh, is considered permissible. And it is non-inferior if the hazard ratio, if obviously if the hazard ratio is past one, it's superior. You know, it's, it actually is better than the control arm. The non-inferiority margin crosses one, but it's above the delta. This is non-inferior, this is non-inferior, and this is non-inferior. 
Number four. Number four is not inferior. It's true because it's a, the upper bound is within the delta, but it excludes one. It's not as good. It's no, the 95% confidence suggests this is actually worse than, but it's permissibly worse, right? So I guess Scott's point is that there's an asymmetry here. Number one is considered superior. Number four should be considered inferior, but acceptable because it's actually below the one. It's like the mirror image of one, uh, but it's not. It's considered non-inferior. Okay, so what did he do? He looked through all these hundreds of trials, and for every single one, they don't always give you the full, the, the full 95% confidence interval. So when they didn't give it, he calculated it himself. And he sorted every trial that was published non-inferiority into one of these buckets. And here's what his conclusion was. 2% of all non-inferiority studies are here, and 8% are here, where they call it inconclusive, but it actually excludes one. It's actually inferior. This should be inferior. So this is his point. That 10% of these trials, we are, you know, up, we're calling it more favorably than what it really is. Inferior, but permissible according to the delta, and inferior and, um, and, it, and crosses the delta, so it could be really, really bad. Here's what else he found. 58% of the margin selected had no reason for why they picked that margin. Why did you choose hazard ratio 1.08? You know, why did you pick that for lenvantinib? 60% uh, the treatment effect of serafinib, but why? Is there a reason, like 60%, what if it was 60? They don't give a reason. 17% the reason provided was vague and irreproducible. And only 25% were justified that they provided a rationale, that this is like, a, that we've surveyed patients and this is considered to be a meaningful, acceptable loss of treatment efficacy in, in exchange for something. We'll come to that. Um, here's another point. Why should you even do a non-inferiority trial? They argue that it is it's only permissible to run NI trials, which often require larger sample size because you need a tight confidence interval, if the drug is cheaper, less toxic, or more convenient administration. If you have a drug that's more costly, m equally toxic, and equally inconvenient, as lenvantinib is, uh, why are you running an NI trial? It should be superiority or bust. What are you doing? Why would anyone switch, even if you are non-inferior? Why would somebody take the uncertainty of being worse than the apparent drug and you offer no alternative advantage? And competition is not one of them because it doesn't lower prices in oncology. Uh, so what they found was of all NI trials, 11% actually were none of these three things. And the other ones you could kind of debate a little. Uh, this is a paper by Doshi on NI trials. He surveyed patients given the consent form. He found seven out of 50 patients who read the consent form even understood it was an NI trial. Most people who read the form, they don't even understand that the trial is actually testing the claim that this could be worse than what we have currently available. Uh, he faults this as a major uh, problem in consenting to non-inferiority studies. All right, let's talk about one favorite, my favorite non-inferiority study, the GSK-sponsored pazopinib versus sunitinib in metastatic renal cell cancer. Okay, GSK pays for it. They make pazopinib. Pfizer makes sunitinib. Who wins the study? 97% of the time, who's going to win? Pazopinib's going to win. Okay, and in fact, they do win. They're non-inferior, and they have way better side effects. It's way more tolerable. It should be the front line. You know, that's the, that's the message that comes out of this. I, this is what John, I think, is talking about. I think he would, he would say, and maybe I would say, that this is less science and more marketing. This is just like marketing that uses the language of science. Um, here's why. This is the Kaplan-Meier PFS estimate. Uh, you know, in, in many places in oncology, you know, this would be a positive study, and you'd be up there on the, giving the plenary, pointing, look at this, how soon it is so much bigger. But it's non-inferiority. 
and it shows Pazopinib is non-inferior to Sunitinib. Look at that, nice and non-inferior. Uh, and here's their power calculation. We calculated 631 progression events were required for the study to have 80% power to reject the null hypothesis of an increased risk in the hazard ratio. Here's their margin, 1.25. They're willing to take a drug that is worse than sunitinib in RCC in the front line. And what did they actually achieve? The hazard ratio was 0.90 to 1.22. I mean, it's, this is, this is a hugely inferior for a drug that, you know, it's not curing people. It's offering a very modest PFS benefit against interferon in the original study. Um, they've picked a very loose criteria for non-inferiority, and they met it. But they don't justify that criteria. And then the other thing they do is they say their drug is more tolerable. Uh, and here's a few things, ways they game the tolerability. You know, pazopinib is continuous. Sunitinib is four weeks on, two weeks off. So patients who take sunitinib often feel good on those two-week holidays. When do you think they administered all the quality of life instruments? Exactly before they took the holiday, not after the holiday. So they penalized the sunitinib on that end. And then two, sunitinib is known for hand-foot syndrome. They have like a bunch of questions asking about hand-foot syndrome. Pazopinib is known for LFT abnormalities. There's like very little talking about LFT abnormalities. So I mean, you can pick and choose what PROs you use and that kind of thing to favor your drug. All right, crossover bias. So Allison, Alice and I wrote this in the uh, Annals of Oncology this year. And basically we say that like, we think crossover is one of the most misunderstood concepts in cancer medicine. Um, and we, define, we think it's like, better to think of it in a two by two way. So there are times in cancer medicine where crossover is desirable. And there's times where it's not desirable. And you can either do it or you cannot do it. And obviously if you do it and it's desirable, that's good. And if you don't do it and it's not desirable, that's good. But any of the other combinations are not good. Okay, so, and we get combinations in every way. Okay, so when is it desirable? It is desirable in situations where the experimental drug has already proven benefit in a latter line of therapy, and you're asking the question, should this drug be used upfront, or should it be used in the latter line as I'm otherwise using it? And I'll give you a good example, latitude. Abiraterone in, uh, metastatic first line, castrate sensitive, in combination with hormone therapy, abiraterone versus just Lupron. Uh, and in fact finds a survival benefit. Okay, but before this study was run, we had two Cougar trials. One showing after docetaxel, survival benefit from abiraterone, one showing prior to docetaxel in metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. So we already knew it has a role in castrate resistant prostate cancer, and all prostate cancer will become castrate resistant. Okay, so latitude is testing whether or not you should use it upfront before you're castrate resistant, right at the outset with metastatic castrate sensitive. So here's what De Bono and colleagues write about this paper. Fizazi report latitude and James report stampede. These three trials involve 3,000 people with prostate cancer. Okay, the control regimens in stampede and latitude were not designed to include the current sequential standard of care with life prolonging crossover treatments. These treatments were not specified in the protocols. This is critical since the majority of men in the control arm of Stampede and Latitude died without exposure to abiraterone and enzalutamide. Thus, the drugs used in the control groups were inconsistent with current prevailing standards of care. This has implications for the conclusions of the trial and raises questions regarding whether or not there was a benefit for all participants. 
So what they're saying is, you ran this trial in a setting where you were not giving control arm patients abiraterone and enzalutamide as we would in this country. And you're concluding that early abiraterone is beneficial, but you haven't tested early abiraterone versus what we're already doing. You're testing abiraterone versus never having a shot at abiraterone. And so they're saying by not having crossover built in, you have failed to make this a useful trial. Okay, so this is where I think you, it's desirable and it doesn't happen. I think it's a problem. Now, where is it undesirable and it does happen? Okay, this is Cipollucil T, also prostate cancer. Okay, so this is metastatic, metastatic castor resistant, asymptomatic, low volume disease, measurable on scan. And it's a randomized controlled trial of Cipollucil T or placebo. And in fact shows a overall survival benefit of four months, 22 to 26. Here's the study design. 512 people are randomized to, well, first I should say, once you get randomized, everyone gets leukophorized. So you get leukophorized because this is a dendritic cell vaccine. So it has to be made. So after you get leukophorized, half of the people receive the vaccine right off the bat. The other half of the people receive a placebo, just like they thought they got a vaccine or not. Okay, there is no difference in response rate because this vaccine has no response. There's no difference in PFS1, absolutely no difference. Once you progress on the control arm, they thawed out the salvage, the vaccine they manufactured but didn't give you and administered you the vaccine. On this arm, once you progressed, you got administered the standard of care at the time, which was docetaxel. Okay, so here's the question. People who got the vaccine got anti-cancer treatments. Okay, here's what they got. Uh, 57% of people who got the vaccine got a subsequent anti-cancer therapy, but only 50% of the placebo group. Why? Because after they progressed, some of them were entertained with the frozen salvage vaccine. And if you got salvage therapy in the Cipollucil T group, you got it at 12.3 months, but in the placebo group, you got it at 13.9 months. You had to wait a little longer. Okay, so there's an imbalance in this trial now because of crossover to the frozen salvage product one group got docetaxel more and earlier than the other group. Does docetaxel improve survival in prostate cancer? Yes. Okay, so here you have a drug with, that has never proven efficacy, ever. And you're administering it in the only trial of efficacy we've ever had. And you're having imbalance in subsequent therapies that actually penalize the control arm. And so this is what the HRQ writes in their report on this drug. We cannot exclude the fact that survival in the absence of response rate or PFS is actually due to harm towards the control group from the delay in chemotherapy and an ineffective frozen salvage product. So crossover is problematic in situations in which the fundamental efficacy of the experimental agent has not been established prior to the study. And then you cross them over. Then if you're left with no survival benefit, the industry says, often, there would have been a survival benefit had it not been for crossover. And no one can say that that's not true. The other possibility is, had it not been for crossover, there wouldn't have been a survival benefit. And the other possibility is, had it not been for crossover, there, there would have been a survival decrement, even, as it might have been the case in this, in this trial. Um, so we see situations where there is undesirable, you wanted crossover, it didn't happen, that's undesirable. But we also see you wanted crossover and it did happen, like Keno 24. And, the other, and some of the other lung cancer keynotes where they cross people over to immunotherapy second line. Uh, and then you also see crossovers desirable and they don't tell you if they crossed everyone over, like Pacific, which is Derva in, in stage three lung cancer, the trial I complain about a lot. 
I actually, it bothers me more when they don't even tell you the post-protocol use of the product. That, that, that annoys me even more than doing it incorrectly, because then I can't figure it out. Crossover is problematic. Um, you're not, you don't want it, and they do it. Simple UCLT. You don't want it, and they don't do it. That's what you prefer. Okay. Last thing, cost-effectiveness bias. It's a big problem in the cost-effectiveness literature. So I think, you know, we've talked a lot about Gleevec, and I guess, you know, sometimes it's worth refreshing our memory, just like how it's such a good drug. Um, this is a, a really clever study that came out of Sweden. This is, if you were diagnosed with CML based on the year you were diagnosed, the yellow line shows your life expectancy. The blue line shows the life expectancy of someone of the same age and sex without CML, their <laughs> life expectancy in Sweden. So in other words, if you were diagnosed in 1974 with CML, you lived on average maybe two to three years, and you would have lived 24 years or something like that if um, you didn't have that diagnosis. So it really did rob you of 20 years of life. Okay? It's not a, not, it wasn't a good thing to be diagnosed with it back in the 70s. <coughs> Why does the blue line go up over time? Secular trend in life expectancy. But now in the US, I think it's actually dipping down, isn't it? Um, the yellow line, after something happens, the gap is almost virtually closed. Okay? What happened? Imatinib. What year was imatinib approved and used in Sweden? 2000, 2001? Why does the curve move up before then? It's that it's a year of diagnosis. So if you were diagnosed even four or five years before, before Gleevec came out, you happened to be lucky enough to live then, and then you started getting the drug, your life expectancy was just skyrocketed forward. And thus you started to benefit even year, people diagnosed in the years prior to the drug. Okay, so that's why it actually starts to bend up early. So that has to do with the product of the natural history of the condition prior to the drug will bend the curve even earlier. So I think like this is remarkable. And if we had this for every cancer drug, we wouldn't be <laughs> quibbling about the price tag and we wouldn't be quibbling about, I would be out of work pretty much. I, would, I have nothing to complain about. Okay. Uh, it, as of 2016, because of price increases, I think a very rough back of the envelope calculation suggests that imatinib, um, is about $72,000 to add a quality adjusted life year. Actually, it's probably fallen a little bit now since multiple generic manufacturers. Do you know what a year of imatinib now generic is? 60K, 50K? More than that still? Okay. But I'm talking about cost effectiveness. So I want to just show you this. You're talking about the most transformational drug, and, and, if you're, and you're paying no penalty for quality discounting. You're talking about like 72K, 100K per life year sort of thing. This is the folks at Tufts University who do a lot of cost-effectiveness work. This is their, their paper where they say, you know, what if you looked at the cost-effectiveness of every single heme malignancy drug in the entire literature? And they say, you know what, we don't even have to do a search. We have a database that we've constructed of all the cost-effectiveness studies. We've been putting them in our database. We'll just look through our database and see what you find for all the heme malignancy drugs. Here's what they find. Some of them are cost savings. If you, it would be foolish not to deploy these drugs, like uh, hepatitis C drugs, they actually save the system money. Some cost zero to 20K per quality, 20 to 40K per quality, 40 to 60K per quality, et cetera, et cetera. And very few are 100K per quality. And we actually, historically, about 50K per quality was considered the traditional threshold of cost effectiveness. But more recently, economists say that anything from 100 to 200K in this society, we'd probably be willing to pay. Here's what I find interesting. So many of these studies are better than Gleevec. How is it possible that they're better than Gleevec? These new costly drugs, better than Gleevec, cost effectiveness. I, we, wrote a letter, we wrote a letter in blood where we try to tease out the reasons in response to this blood form article. There are many limitations of their, of their work. 
But basically, I think it's implausible that some of these drugs are better than Gleevec. It shouldn't be better than Gleevec because you cost the same as Gleevec and you're not as effective. So how can you be more cost-effective than Gleevec? And in fact, um, other work has shown that when NICE receives cost-effectiveness assessments, NICE is the, the UK group that decides what to pay for, funny that if you're an independent group, you say it costs more per life year than when the industry does their own cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, this is Charlie Bennett and colleagues showing in, when you look at a bunch of breast cancer drug cost-effectiveness studies, industry studies are more likely to conclude they're cost-effective at different thresholds than the ones that are funded by impartial groups. This was a JAM Oncology paper. The reason I bring this up is sometimes you find cost-effectiveness studies like this. We used a partition survival model. It's a very clever model. If you use a Weibull model, partition survival model, some of these very you know, complicated survival function models in your cost-effectiveness study. And then the other thing interesting about some of these studies is, oh, some of the authors work for the company that makes the product. And some of the authors work for a consulting firm that specializes in this type of analysis. So that's interesting. But yet, some of the first and last authors are giant names in the field who must have thought of the idea by themselves and approached the company and the consulting firm, and then probably did the partition survival analysis themselves, and then wrote it up themselves, and explained the partition survival analysis, because I'm sure they use that analysis all the time. So I suspect that one should be cautious about such papers, because someday, somebody may wonder how people who do not know that function, or one would wonder how they learned that function, their very busy days, have become experts in it, and are authoring these papers. So, conclusions. I think the conclusions to these problems are the following. One, we currently live in a structure of FDA where you submit a user fee with your drug application. So you give $2.6 million and you submit your clinical trial reports to the FDA and they make a call, approve or reject the drug, after conversations. I think in the future, we will someday have a system where you submit that user fee, but it'll be $22 million. You submit the compound and you submit your preclinical data, and the impartial agency designs and conducts the trial. And that way, the moment the DSMB halts, they'll approve the drug, and if the DSMB rejects, they won't, and they'll pick the control and the comparator, and they'll use an impartial body to decide on all those things, experts in the field. I think that someday the pendulum will swing that way, and probably in our lifetime, I suspect. That's, this, is my, this is my guess. Okay, appropriate control arms. I think the FDA will now, the real world data will be kind of used against them, People will use real-world data to argue what the control arm should be at the outset. People will say it'll be the most frequent drug combination used in that space. That's the prevailing standard of care. So it'll actually really, I think, hurt a lot of trials. I mean, hurt them in the sense it'll be harder to show benefits. You'll have to actually be a better drug. Um, I think somebody will have to look at dose reduction schema and make them more equitable. I think we probably have to teach this better. And I think that on the conflict of interest front, it's gotten very hot recently. But I think that, the, that someday somebody will, um, I think people will think, consider disclosure to be an ineffective solution to this problem. And there's a few reasons why. There's a PNAS article that says when you disclose, actually, the person you disclose to has more faith in your recommendation than if you had not disclosed at all. And they call that backfiring, that it actually creates trust of the person making the disclosure. So psychologically, one wonders if disclosure is actually good for patients. The one thing disclosure has permitted is large-scale studies of this phenomenon and we've been able to link it to prescribing patterns and other things. And, we've been and so, you know, from somebody who likes data, it's a good thing. But from somebody trying to solve the issues of conflict, I think it's difficult. I think some people may push for divesture in the future, and they'll want more strict divestment. Uh, 
Those are just some scattered thoughts. Thanks for having me. I think uh, if you like this, you can check out the podcast on your on your commute. Sid. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.